Our New Testament reading today is, again, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And our sermon text, again, is in 2 Peter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, music team. Thank you, church family, for the encouraging singing. Last week, uh, in our study of 2 Peter, uh, we looked at this uh, big, long, if-then statement that begins in verse 4 and ends in the middle of verse 10. Uh, basically, uh, Peter is saying, if 
uh, or since might be a better translation. If God judged angels by chaining them up in the hottest and darkest part of hell, which he did, and if he he judged the entire ancient world except Noah and seven other people with the worldwide flood, which he did, and if he judged the original sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by raining fire and brimstone on them, which he did, and if he preserved Noah and his family in the ark, which he did, and if he rescued righteous Lot and his two daughters, which he did, then he will always rescue his people, and he will always punish the unrighteous. Always. This is the established pattern of a holy and merciful God. Wrath for the wicked and rescue for the righteous. Judgment for the unrepentant sinner and salvation for the elect chosen from the foundation of the world who have received the gift of repentance and faith. As Charles Swindle said, and we quoted him last week, if or since God has historically established a pattern of reserving judgment of the wicked for the proper time while rescuing his righteous people, then we can be confident that he will do the same in the future. Rescue us from the coming wrath and leave the wicked false teachers behind for judgment. Very straightforward, very clear. The Bible doesn't uh, hide this truth. To put it another way, God judges righteously and saves mercifully. Or to put it like Paul in Romans eleven twenty two, note then the kindness, i.e. mercy, and severity in his judgment of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. And there we have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Otherwise, if you don't persevere, if you don't continue, that shows you were, you were never born again and you too will be cut off. This is why Peter begins his, this second letter, as we've studied back before Christmas. Uh, this is why Peter wants us to make our calling and election sure. So we won't have to face judgment on the final day. So we won't be cut off. And we make our calling and election sure. We confirm our salvation by continuing in God's kindness, as Peter says here. Or, as we read in other places of Scripture, by persevering in the faith, by remaining steadfast and immovable. By pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus with our eyes on Him. 
by working out our salvation with fear and trembling, by letting our light shine before men, that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven, by being transformed into Christ's likeness from one level of glory to the next. Now, my pastoral prayer for you is that you recognize all those preceding phrases as words taken directly from Scripture, synonymous phrases for the person that is truly born again, the person that is being changed, the person that is being sanctified, the person that is being conformed into the likeness of Christ, the person whose mind is being renewed because they have presented their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. I pray with every fiber of my being that we as a church family are getting these scriptural phrases into our spiritual bloodstream, that they are second nature for us. When you hear them spoken, you say, yes, I know where that is. I know that's in 2 Corinthians 3. I know that's in Philippians 2. I know that's in Philippians 3. You are so familiar with these phrases that they are a part of who you are. As Moses said to the people of God, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. Okay, we are not actually leaving last week's passage because I want to say a little bit more about Sodom and Gomorrah and the heinous sin that we see there. Sort of like a little, little side trip, you know. And you go on vacation, you've got this destination in mind, your ultimate destination, and you pull off somewhere to get some need, and you see, oh, man, this is really, let's check this out too. And so, okay, so that's what we're doing here. Okay, we're pulling off and checking something out and making sure we're thinking biblically about it. Okay, you with me? Man, I love those nodding heads. Gosh, I love y'all so much. Here we go. So the heinous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, let's read the actual account that Peter is referring to in verses 6 to 8. So go ahead and be turning to Genesis 19, and we're going to read the actual account. And as we read this, let's just consider this. One of the many proofs or evidences of the divine origin of the Bible is the fact that the Scriptures never gloss over man's depravity. They never, the Scriptures never whitewash anything. If men had written the Bible, if, if human beings had been the ultimate source of the Bible, they probably would have left out a lot in order to make human beings look better. <laughs> but the Bible is very clear about the depravity of man. It pulls no punches. It hides nothing. I'll give you a little lead up to this account that we're going to read in Genesis 19. In Genesis 13, we get the first hint of of Sodom's depravity in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked 
great sinners against the Lord. And in Genesis 18, verse 20, we read the Lord saying, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. And then at the end of chapter 18 of Genesis, verses 23 to 32, we see a a text you're probably familiar with, an interesting conversation between Abraham and the Lord as Abraham intercedes for Sodom. And he starts by saying, if you, Lord, if you find 50 men there, will you spare it? Yeah, I'll spare it. How about 45? Yeah, how about 40? And he goes all the way down to 10. Yeah, if I find 10, if there's 10 there, I'll spare it. Okay. Bottom line, there aren't 10 there. <laughs> there aren't 10 righteous people there. In fact, only three make it out. Only three make it out. So let's, let's with that lead up, let's read the account. Genesis 19, beginning at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom. God has already sent the angels, you know, the, the, the angels of judgment, the destroying angels. He sent them there, and they came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, uh, indicating that Lot may have had some kind of type of leadership position in the city, the fact that he was sitting in the gate. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet. Obviously, these angels are in some kind of, are, are in a human form. Lot rec- sees them as, as, as human beings, as, as people like him. And he's going to, you know, show hospitality to him. Uh, then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But Lot, Lot knows that ain't going to work. Lot knows his city. He knows his city, and so he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, young and old, the, 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 the perversion has been passed down, the young and the old, all the people to the last man, apparently every man in the city, what it sounds like. The men of Sodom, young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, parents, I'm going to let you discuss the Hebrew meaning of the word know there to your young children, okay? Uh, Just to give you a, a, a hint, you know, we read earlier in Genesis that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. So we know where we know what that means. Uh, verse six: Lot uh, went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him. So he goes outside, closes the door. He's trying to reason with them, and said, "I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, and this was always this has always raised questions to me: How why would a father do this?" Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. So for some reason, Lot is placing hospitality over fatherhood. I don't really understand that. I look forward to talking to him about that in in heaven, because he's He's a beneficiary of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We saw it three times in 2 Peter, 
Righteous man, righteous lot, his righteous soul. God rescues him because of this gift of righteousness, not because of what he's done. But let's think about that. That's true for every one of us, right? Why did God rescue you? Because of what you've done? No, because of what Jesus has done. We had a great conversation about that today in our membership class. Get another good membership class. Be praying for them as they make this decision about church membership. But I love that class. I love that class. Okay, so let's continue the story here. Lot offers his daughters. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they turn on, turn on Lot. And they're going to gang up on him. Uh, then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands. They, the, the angels inside, here's the first hint of the rescue. They reach out their hands and they brought Lot into the house with them. So they jerk him away from the crowd and they shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. So the angels blind the, the hostile crowd. And then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we're about to destroy this place. We've seen enough. <laughs> because the outcry against the people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out. And said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So the, son, the, the, the sons-in-law, they, they blow him off. He, nah, they don't believe him, so they ignore him. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. See, Lot is torn. Lot is the example of the Christian, the, the saved person who wants one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And that always leads to, to bad things. That leads to hardship. That leads to unnecessary uh, trial. But he's, he's lingering. He's torn. So the men seized him. A picture of, uh, of the rescue. They seized him. And his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, just like he was merciful to you. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape through the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my Lord. See, so he's still wrestling with this for some reason. And he says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Because you were one of the chosen, I'm going I'm to rescue you in, in this city that you choose. I'm going to let you choose the city. Again, we see grace 
and mercy. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Okay. Devastating account uh, of the judgment of God, of the wrath of God. A picture of hell. A picture of hell. Last Sunday, I posed this question. What do you think of, what first comes to your mind when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah? And my guess is that a lot of you might have said the sin of homosexuality. And that would be understandable. Uh, Probably what I would say. But just so we'll know, there were more sins in Sodom than homosexuality. Um, Let's consider Ezekiel 16, verses 48 through 50. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had pride, excess of food. And prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. In other words, they had more than enough to share, but didn't. So, my point here is, I think we're sometimes quick to, oh, homosexuality, that would never be me. But what about pride? What about being overwhelmed with the goodness of God through the good gifts that he's given you and not sharing, not being a giver. Ezekiel continues, they were haughty, arrogant, and did an abomination before me. He mentions that last, and the abomination obviously is what we just read. So I removed them when I saw it. But admittedly, even though it's not the only one, homosexuality is the one we remember. It's the one we highlight. And I guess you could say the Bible highlights that. Okay? So let's let's continue to think together, corporate pondering about this sin. And we'll do that by going to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Classic text from the Apostle Paul. You know, if you had to pick, if hypothetically you had to pick one book of the Bible to keep, if you had to get rid of everything else, you wanted one book of the Bible. Romans would probably be the one you'd want. 
because it, man, the gospel, it, the good, bad news, the good news, everything's there. So Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 18, let's read, start reading there, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the ESV uh, subtitle there for this section is God's wrath on unrighteousness. And that's what we've just seen in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Okay, God's wrath on unrighteousness. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Let's stop right there. Let me make a real quick comment. One of the critics of uh, Christianity and, and uh, we as Bible believers and uh, Christians is that, okay, what about the people, you know, who, uh, who, who've never heard about Jesus and who've never heard uh, preaching about Jesus and, and then uh, they die and go to hell? Well, do you realize that the Bible never teaches that people go to hell because they reject preaching about Jesus? Here's why they go to hell. <laughs> they reject God. They reject God. And God has revealed himself in his creation. Okay. And then those that respond properly to God's uh, natural revelation, God will get them the gospel message. We believe in the sovereignty of God and evangelism and in salvation. The person that responds properly to the natural revelation of God in His created world, will hear the gospel. God will get the gospel to them through a missionary or however He chooses. Okay, so let, I wanted to throw that in there right, right there. Okay, People don't go to hell for rejecting Jesus that they might not have ever heard about. They go to hell for rejecting God. All right, let's continue. They were without, they're without excuse. They can't say, well, I didn't hear a preacher. I didn't hear about Jesus. Well, yeah, but God revealed himself, has revealed himself in his created world. They're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I mean, verse 22 there, that's a verse for today, if there ever was one. There are a lot of white people out there claiming to be wise, and they're just fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, therefore, because of their rejection of God... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Verse 26, for this reason, there's that phrase again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here's that key phrase again, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, covetousness, malice. And then Paul continues with the list there. Okay. What's the primary message of this text, of this passage, 18 to 32? I believe it's this. There is a basic root sin from which all other sins flow. And that basic root sin is the refusal to honor God as God. The suppressing of the truth of who He is. To turn one's back on His glory. Now, this foundational sin is fleshed out in many ways. By one way, refusing to thank God. By not acknowledging Him as the source of every good gift. By not glorifying Him and delighting in Him. By not praising Him or worshiping Him properly. By not seeing Him as the center of all life. By not submitting to His sovereignty and His authority in all things. By ignoring that authority that he has over his creation. By exchanging his glory for other things. By placing the pleasing of people over the pleasing of God. And we could go on and on with, that, with the list. But these all are manifestations of not honoring God as God. And what does Paul say? He says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven, listen, now. He, he's not talking about the future judgment day wrath here. It's being revealed from heaven now against this hard attitude of dishonoring God and all the many sins that flow from that kind of heart. Not just homosexuality. I mean, read the list. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. Gossips, really? Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Whoa, really? Yeah, really. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
I pointed out and emphasized the phrase in 24, 26, and 28, God gave them up. That, that's very obvious. It's a very obvious phrase. An important phrase because it is the definite aspect of God's wrath toward those who refuse to glorify him. He basically says, okay, you reject me, you turn your back on me, you, di- you dishonor me, you will not glorify me. So I'm turning you over. I'm giving you up to your depravity. Now. Right now. One day, if you stay there, you will wind up in hell, but I'm judging you now. I'm revealing my wrath against you now by giving you over to what your depraved heart wants. That's a judgment that you don't want. What we're reading about here in Romans 1 is God's present tense in this life, right now in the moment, judicial act against their root sin of dishonoring him. Do you you see that? It's being revealed now. So what's Paul saying here? Namely this, their sin is their judgment in this life. James Boyce calls it, quote, the judicial abandonment of the human race to the consequences of their rebellion. So, as people exchange the glory of God for images, as verse 23 says, as people revel in idolatry and refuse to honor Him or thank Him, God gives them up to impurity, verse 24, and to the dishonoring of their bodies, and He gives them up, in verse 26, to dishonorable passions, namely, homosexual passions, as verse 26 and 27 make very clear, both from the female and the male standpoint. Beloved, God's Word cannot be any clearer regarding the sinfulness sinfulness of homosexuality. As sad as that is, It can't be any clearer, no matter how much the world and the secular mindset that dominates our society wants to spin it away. Thomas Schreiner writes, quote, Paul rejects homosexuality as contrary to the created order. Homosexual activity is a violation of what God intended when he created men and women. And This is not just a New Testament name. This is the consistent testimony of Scripture. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Sexually immoral. That includes heterosexual sinful actions as well. Like adultery, premarital activity, 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the Bible is clear. It's, it's not ambiguous. It's not cloudy. <laughs> the sinfulness of homosexuality is abundantly clear. No matter how much people of this post-Christian, post-biblical, man-centered age try to spin it with phrases like, or explanations like, I was born that way. God made me that way. Or, or the difference between, uh, this is a popular one, sinful illicit, sinful illicit homosexuality versus uh, not sinful loving homosexuality. Okay? In other words, two men who love each other and they don't participate with others, that's good. That's okay. It's the rampant polymorous homosexuality that's the sin, that's the illicit thing, just like in the same realm of more people in a heterosexual, heterosexual union or activity. A lot of spinning going out there today. And we're cast as the unloving ones for pointing out what the Bible says. That these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And to cover that over and to hide that, in our view, is the unloving thing. Edward Welch writes, and speaking of Edward Welch, uh, to, to, as a follow-up, we've made these available, these little booklets by Edward Welch, my favorite, one of my favorite biblical counselors, uh, speaking the truth in love about homosexuality. They're out there for the taking if you want them. They're, they're, it's a great little um, resource for you in speaking with this, maybe with loved ones or, and I'm sure some of you have already done that. You've already, you know, it's, it's, it's a, and you've hit a brick wall. But the brick walls doesn't make us stop teaching what the Bible says. Uh, and Welch says from this booklet, the Bible teaches that there is a creation order for human sexuality. God's ordained design for sexual relationships is male-female within the context of covenant marriage. Homosexual acts and homosexual desire by either male or female, are a violation of this creation ordinance and are thus sinful. This being so, the church must warn and rebuke those who call themselves Christians but persist in homosexual practice. And the church must actively teach that homo 
homosexual affection is sinful. There is no morally neutral inborn homosexual orientation. End quote. So, back to Romans 1. When we read verses 24 to 27, uh, we, we're, we're appalled. I, I mean, we're, we're saddened. We're, we're pierced to the heart. Uh, we're heartsick. We're heartbroken. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Again, we're just we're we're sick, we're heart sick, especially if a loved one has fallen to this sin. And we wonder how, how can this happen? But listen, and here's what I want you to get today. Where should we begin to be appalled in this text? Where should our shock and our dismay begin? Why not at verse 21? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Or give thanks to him. Or, or why not verse 25? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Yes, homosexuality is heinous to many of us. Probably most of us. As all sin, all sin should be. Gossip should be heinous to us. But sadly, especially in the church in America, not honoring God is ho-hum to many of us. It's just not a big deal. Maybe most of us. Beloved, this should not be. Let's start being appalled where we should start being appalled. Here's what I want to say to you this morning, my dear church family. Let's be offended by the root, foundational, fundamental sin. Let's be appalled that professing Christians don't honor God with all that they are much, much more than we are by unbelievers who are engaged in homosexuality. Here's the main point. Humanity's biggest problem is not homosexuality. Not honoring God is man's biggest problem. Why? 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 You know the answer. Because every other transgression flows from that. Every other one, including homosexuality, including disobedience to parents, including gossip. Every other sin flows from not honoring God. 
Let's let our disgust start there. Let's let our sadness start there. Let's let our brokenheartedness start there. So you say, well, so, okay, but so, okay, so why does Paul focus so much on homosexuality right here then? Ponder with me these words uh, by one of my new found becoming favorite writers, uh, Glenn Scribner. Karen, I don't know if you're here yet, yet on this one, but he writes this. On the reading about Sodom and Gomorrah, he writes, The Bible is not obsessed with sex, but it does recognize the relatedness of sex to all of life. Sex is meant to be rightly used in the covenant union of marriage. When we take it out of that context, it is part of a wider disordering of life. And then he says this, Disordered sex is a sign and a source of disordered living. Now let's focus on that last statement. Let me repeat it. Disordered sex is a, of which homosexuality is, it goes against God's creation ordinance. Disordered sex is a sign and a source of disordered living. Okay, as we ponder this statement, now first, for me, I would remove the word source. I swear I would disagree with Professor Scribner there. I would remove the word source. I don't believe the disordered sex is the source of disordered living. I believe it's the result of disordered living. So take that word out, and we have a new, and in my mind, a, a more accurate statement. Disordered sex, i.e. homosexuality, and any immoral sex, any immoral heter heterosexual sex, I mean, we're dealing with a broader topic now. Disordered sex is a sign, or as Paul would say, a judgment of disordered living. And what is that disordered living? Not honoring God as God. You with me? Disordered living, not honoring God, results in disordered sexual activity. Now, bring Ephesians 5 into the picture. For time's sake, we're not going to go there. I hope you're familiar with Ephesians 5. Bring Ephesians 5 into the picture where Paul teaches. Everybody that's gone through my pre-marriage counseling classes, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Ephesians 5, Paul teaches that heterosexual marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. So a marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Jesus, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. And thus reflects the proper relationship between God and his people. Jesus loves his bride, the church, and gives his life for her. The bride, as a continual 
constant thank offering for the new life that the bridegroom has given her submits to Christ, her Lord and bridegroom. The result of that relationship is what? God is honored. God is glorified. The opposite of what Paul's talking about in Romans 1, 18 and following. So, get this now. Don't leave me. Heterosexual marriage is a visual aid for the beautiful relationship between God and his people. Paid for by the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant. So, don't lose that train of thought now. So, when a person says, I will not honor God with my life. I will not glorify him. And therefore, I reject the proper relationship between God and man. Then God says, okay, I'm going to reveal my wrath on your idolatry by giving you over, since you won't recognize the proper relationship between God and man, I'm going to give you over to improper sexual relationships among yourselves. You see the connection? Namely, homosexual relationships whose practitioners will not, according to Scripture, not according to Butch, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I remember back in the 90s, I guess it was 90s, late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s, when many people said, remember Magic Johnson got AIDS, all all these people were getting AIDS. And uh, for some reason, that thing, I I was teaching at Snellville Middle School. I remember I had it off, uh, it was my planning period, I was in the library reading the paper. And the headline was there, Magic Johnson, you know, has AIDS. That was the big deal. So that would have been the late 80s, that would have been 89. So there you go, I've just nailed it down when it was. But back in those days, people were saying that, that AIDS uh, was God's judgment on homosexuality. Well, beloved, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I, don't, I don't read that in the Bible. I mean, it could be, but it, it is, it's mere speculation. No one can prove that. Uh, we, we can speculate it. But what I want to say to you this morning is, is this. What is not speculation And what the Bible says in Romans 1 is that homosexuality is God's judgment on people who will not honor him as God. We don't have to speculate about that. It's right there. Black ink on white paper inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. God gave them over to impure passions to dishonorable passions because they would not honor him as God. So, the surprise ending today is this. Not honoring God is the true heinous sin. That's what I want you to hear, dear church family. Not honoring God 
is the ultimate heinous sin. And as a result, God gives people who persist in dishonoring Him over to dishonorable passions, of which homosexuality is one. So, what should be our attitude toward homosexuality? Before moving to conclusion this morning, let's consider that together. What should be our heart? What should be the heart of God's church toward the issue of homosexuality? I want to give you four thoughts real quick. Number one, we must hold a clear and deep conviction about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior. We, we can't allow ourselves to be swayed from this. We must resist erroneous teachings that sound loving, but distort the straightforward teachings of the Word of God. And rest assured, beloved, the challenge to the biblical teaching is not going away. It will get more intense. You just know it. Just, know, just rest assured. Number two, we must always remember that its root is not honoring God as God. You know, it's the attitude that says, well, God, you say I'm, as a man, I'm, if I'm going to get married, I, I'm supposed to marry a woman. Well, I, I'm smarter than you, and uh, I'm going to marry a man if I want to. I'm the boss. I'm the Lord. I'm sovereign. Forget it. Forget you. At its root is the sin of not honoring God as the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, the designer of human beings and of biblical marriage. Therefore, because of that, because that the root of sexual immorality, any sexual disorder is the root sin of not honoring God as God, we must not speak of the speck in someone else's eye until we have removed the log from our own eye. In other words... Before you go to your homosexual friend or family member, you need to ask yourself the question, am I glorifying God in all things? Am I honoring God in every aspect of my life? So, so do you see the beauty of this? I mean, this is the way God has set up the church discipline process, Right? In Matthew 7, before he actually speaks of the discipline process in Matthew 18, he lays the groundwork by saying, uh, 
judge not lest you be judged. Most people like to stop right there and say, okay, we shouldn't be judged. Well, no, we judge after what? After we check the speck in our, or the log in our own eye. Before you go to the speck in your brother's eye, hey, take out the telephone pole in your own eye. Check yourself. Check yourself first. So what happens? It becomes, a, in the wisdom of God, a beautiful self-purification process for the church. I can't come to you about any sin. Forget homosexuality for a minute. For about any sin. Unless I, until I've checked myself. And the same is true for this sin. Are you glorifying God in all things? Because that's the root of any and all sin. Number three. We must be more appalled at the dishonoring of God by professing Christians than we are at the homosexual behavior of unbelievers who are receiving God's judgment. God's dealing with them. Let's be more appalled about people who say they're believers but blatantly dishonor God with the way they live. Let judgment begin with the house of God, right? And number four, I love the Bible. (laughs) And because of the Bible, we can say this. We must never give up hope that the gospel brings. We must never give up in the hope that the gospel brings. Earlier I read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Let me read that again and finish by tacking on verse 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Past tense. Such were some of you. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, no one, no one, I don't care what sin they're engaged in, no one is beyond the reach of the grace of God. Some of us have seen that recently. None of us are beyond the reach of the loving grace of God. So we do not lose hope. With God, all things are possible. No matter how bad a person's situation may look, there is always hope because we serve and worship a mighty God who saves. So, conclusion. Let's let's wrap it up with some eye-opening words of Jesus. Let's let Jesus weigh in. Jesus has got some words about Sodom and Gomorrah. Did you realize that? I'm sure you did. You've read your Bible. Matthew chapter 10, verses 12 to 15. This was part of the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. If you remember when he sent them out. Okay? He's, he's, you know, he's, pretty much, he's just finished calling his disciples. You know, he's, got, he's got the 12. He's sending them out. And he gives, us the, he gives them these instructions. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, 
In other words, if they reject the message you're bringing, if they reject the message about me, this is Jesus speaking, they reject the gospel, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Do you see the breathtaking thing that Jesus is saying? Do you understand what he's saying? Anyone here that's never, that you've not confessed Jesus as Lord, to this point in your life, you've rejected the gospel and you have not submitted to the Lordship of Christ. What is Jesus saying to you? He is saying that rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ will receive a harsher, harsher judgment on the last day than Sodom and Gomorrah will receive. Rejecting the gospel, listen, is worse than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Please hear what Jesus is saying. Please. And for us believers, here's the good news. The fire and the brimstone should have fallen on us. We totally and absolutely deserved it because the wages of sin is death. But it fell on our substitute instead as he hung on a cross. So I'm asking you one more time. Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Have you repented of your sin and received God's free gift of forgiveness? Are you trusted in Jesus alone that he has paid your debt with his blood? If not, today is the day of salvation. You do not have to face a judgment worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your your clear-cut instruction to us today. As we come to this table, as we prepare to come to this table, help us to truly examine ourselves. Is there any way we are not honoring you? Is there any way we're not giving you the glory that you so richly deserve? If so, Lord, lead us to repentance. As we come under the, the beautiful, wondrous, crimson flow of Christ's forgiving blood. Thank you, Father. Thank you for saving us. Help us to live like saved people. Help us to honor you with our life. Be glorified in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.